Welcome back to another episode of Classic Movies Live. This is a very special episode, as all of them are, because today we're going to be talking about the 48th annual Toronto International Film Festival. This uh, just wrapped up this weekend. Uh, I literally came from a movie to talk about this. Like I finished, I think, an hour before we started recording, and I saw a lot of movies. So in this one, Pierre is going to uh, ask me some questions, and we're going to go through some of my favorite movies I saw at TIFF, some of the most interesting, because that does not necessarily mean favorite, and um, you know some of the bad movies. With this, I'm trying as hard as I can to be spoiler-free. It is possible that I may say more about a given movie than perhaps I should. There's no specific movie in mind I have here. It's just really this is up to how you treat spoiler thresholds. But no plot points are spoiled. I steer clear of talking about any twists in any movies. Although, you know, sometimes I may say a movie has one. So, you know, know your personal spoiler threshold. But as far as spoilers go, this is... as spoiler-free as we get. So, there is a special, special ad that anyone who goes to TIFF will be familiar with, and anyone who doesn't go to TIFF is going to become familiar with. This is Unexpected Wonders. In the search for wonder, there are no endings, only new beginnings. Discover unexpected wonders. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a, a special episode of Classic Movies Live, where we're talking about um, something that Jeff went to for the past eleven days. It rhymes with myth, and that... <laughs> it starts with a T. So you're saying it's just myth with a T? Then yes. So it's, <laughs> it's to myth, actually. Yes, you went to to myth. Yes. Um, no, he went to TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And I think this, is, this isn't your first time, but this is like your first like big, in, not time, big time investment, I'd say, right? I would say last year was pretty similar as an investment. Um, I can't remember exactly how many movies I saw last year, but I remember I told uh, Dakota and Rachel about it and they were like, he's insane. He's seen too many movies. Yeah. And I saw more this year. So, like, um, it, it was my second time going to TIFF and mm-hmm. my second time overdoing it at TIFF as well. Well, I mean, can you really overdo TIFF, if that makes sense? Well, because well, how well, many movies would you say you missed? So, I, I mean, technically, I missed a bunch of movies, but like mm-hmm. the big ones that I think that I don't think there's any that I missed that I'm going to regret missing. By which I mean, like, the ones that I did miss are at least going to come out. Like, two or three of them even have uh, confirmed release dates. But I would say that I probably missed, like, four movies that I uh, wish I hadn't missed. But, like, again, they're ones that will actually come out. Like, last year, I know there was the one, uh, The People's Joker, that I missed the premiere of. And Mm. it still has not released. 
So, you know, sometimes mm. movies like go to TIFF and then get lost. So yeah. I don't think that's going to happen with any of the movies that uh, I did miss this year. So you're saying that you could have watched more movies. <laughs> so well, you haven't overdone it. One thing that I thought was kind of uh, kind of wild is I saw 40 movies at TIFF and I still missed the People's Choice Awards winner. Is that <clears throat> are there are there nominees for that or is it just every movie and you just kind of got to be lucky to catch the one that's the People's Choice winner? Every movie is eligible unless it opts out and some movies do actually opt out of that prize for some reason. But otherwise, oh. every movie is eligible for it. But you can usually get a pretty good idea of what's going to win or at least like what the contenders are going to be for the People's Choice Award. Because like um, there was a movie I saw at Midnight Madness. Uh, it was a Korean horror movie that is like from a first time. I, I don't think he was a first time director, but he was he doesn't have that many movies under his belt. And it's it's a Korean genre movie that didn't play that often and was basically like designed for a full theater at midnight specifically. That one's not going to win people's choice. Yeah. So wait, would you say that, is it possible some movies don't want to be one winning, they don't want to win people's choice because is it, is it kind of seen as like the, the Nickelodeon kids awards, (laughs) kids choice award or something of the festival where it's like, it's an award, but it's like, you don't want to be you don't want to win from the general population if that makes sense. You want to win. I'm I'm not really sure. I would say probably not because the Toronto mm. International Film Festival, their People's Choice Award, that's the biggest prize that is at this festival. Yeah. And historically at least for the last probably I want to say 10 years or so. <clears throat> maybe longer even historically if you get the people's choice award you are almost guaranteed to get nominated not necessarily win but get nominated for the oscar for best picture Mm. and so like i don't know i don't know why someone would opt out of it um it would be weird if like it could be the the reason you just said but that would be weird because like it's um as far as festivals go there's like you know, there's the really prestigious ones, which is like Cannes, Venice, and probably one or two other ones. But like, you know, um, those, I guess. But then Toronto is kind of, it's still in the upper echelons of festivals. And getting a prize at Toronto is like, is a good thing for your movie. So I don't know why someone would opt out of it. But mm. who knows? We'll find out. What we got to do is we got to make a movie one day. And then opt out just to see what happens. <laughs> so maybe get invited <laughs> to like a special party when you opt out. Um, maybe. That would be nice. So you saw 40 movies. Did, were there any movies where you kind of knew what you were going into? Going into like, were there directors you knew um, that so, you were interested in seeing? Or was this mostly kind of uh, like more independent movies where you didn't really know what you were getting into? So the way that... Um... I, I like to go into movies knowing as little as possible. So most of the movies that I went to, like I saw a picture from the press release, thought it was cool and was like, I'm going to go see that. Or some of these I had already heard about. Like, um, 
or like some of these I'd already heard about, like the uh, the Taika Waititi movie Next Goal Wins was the first mm. one that was like announced for this festival. Uh, yeah. There's a Turkish movie called About Dry Grasses that did really well at Cannes and um, was selected for Turkey's uh, as Turkey's submission to Best International Feature. So I went to that. Um, and then there was one that like had a funny picture of Aquafina, and I'm like, okay, I'll go see Quiz Lady, I guess. So you know, um, the reasons that I went to any movie were pretty varied. But then you know, sometimes uh, there were definitely a lot of directors that I knew here as well. Um, Christopher Borgley had a movie uh, out called Dream Scenario. Christopher Borgley did a movie two years ago that a friend of mine really really likes, and I watched and like messed me up for like four days called sick of myself. That's about yeah. addiction, but it's like a very, um, it's a very different movie about addiction than most of the addiction movies I've seen. The guy who did drive my car had a movie out, uh, called evil does not exist, which I had oh, to yeah. go see. Um, and you that, said was, that one I, was half the length of drive my car, right? Half the length of drive my car, yes, but also God. really, really good. Um, and then, of course, well, and then there was a Hayao Miyazaki movie, The Boy and the Heron. Um, so I tried very hard to get that, to go see that one. And uh, my my buddy Brandon was nice enough to buy me a second ticket so I didn't even have to, like, worry about it. And uh, Anna Kendrick had a movie, had her directorial debut premiering at TIFF. So I was like, well, I that's a must-see. I actually missed one of the, one of the movies I was talking about earlier where I'm like, this is a big one that I wish I had been able to catch. The only time I could have caught it was during Anna Kendrick's movie. And I was not missing the premiere of Anna Kendrick's movie. That wasn't happening. <laughs> Even though she couldn't be there, which was very sad. But, uh, you know, there's there's a good reason for that. So Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be a little selfish here. Because I really want to know about certain movies that I was interested in in hearing about. Um, Hell yeah. like next goal wins i really want to know what your thoughts on is it next goal wins is that what it's called next goal wins that's the taika waititi one yeah, um, with, um michael fassbender michael fassbender mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and i think it, it's one that like famously had a really troubled production i thought i remembered hearing about it before 2019 but apparently 2019 is when it was actually announced and uh, at the time, a minor role had gone to Army Hammer. And mm. then I think that same year, like some some stuff came out about Army Hammer that was like Sorry. questionable. And he kind of <laughs> he kind of lost his career yeah. um, and they had to reshoot to like um, to replace him with probably Will Arnett. I'm not sure if they like replaced him. I know Will Arnett wasn't in the movie before. I know, and he was after. So I think he, like, obviously he's replacing at least some of Army Hammer's stuff there. But yeah. from what it sounded like, it sounds like Army Hammer's character was just kind of removed and Will Arnett's character was, like, inserted separately. Yeah. But it's hard to know for sure. Um, anyway, point being, famously troubled production. And the movie was okay. Like, mm. I think that... I think that like when people go and see this movie, whether or not they like it is going to depend almost a hundred percent on how much they like Taika Waititi's humor. 
Yeah, it's, yeah. It's not as obnoxious as in Love and Thunder. Like it's not oh, Taika. <laughs> it's not Taika at his most cringe for sure, but it is Taika Waititi at his like doing a lot of Taika Waititi style humor. And I mm. thought that it mostly landed for me, but the mm. story underneath was like so nothing. Um, I thought it was just kind of like not fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear like what people's opinions are when it actually comes out. But I think the, the story is, it's very basically like, it's a very basic, um, you know, sports redemption arc movie with paper thin characters, mostly that exist primarily to pump up Michael Fassbender, mm. which like, Michael Fassbender is great in it, which is good because he has to be, he's the entire movie, but like uh, it's a movie about a soccer team. And I remember three people on the soccer team that aren't Michael Fassbender. And like, that is unfortunate. It's yeah, it's a shame. I I wish it was better than it is. Uh, My review of it without, I hope I didn't spoil anything. Uh, but my review of it would be, I think that it will kind of work for some people, but that it's not very good. Like it's, it's, it's probably entertaining Saturday matinee viewing. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Okay. So thoughts on Taika Waititi's career path. I think that this is a weird outlier. Like, I don't know what he's got coming up, but just considering that this was like, this was going to be his movie in 2020, right? Or whenever, mm-hmm. like if they announced it in 2019, it was going to get started with production and come out probably way, probably way before 2023. So yeah. I think that like, at this point, this is a movie that just had to get released. And like, I don't think it was going to get any more polishing up. I think it was one that was like, it had been in the oven too long. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's a good, I don't actually think it's much of a, uh, much of an indicator of what might come next for Taika. I I hope it isn't, but also I don't think it is because like, I feel like he was probably mostly done with this movie for all creative intents and purposes a while ago. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Do you think the Will Arnett, role because it says will arnett's role was expanded uh after army hammer got replaced and army hammer was more of a cameo do you believe that was true that army will hammer arnett just had a cameo or was that uh some publicity publicity stunt to make people think that they didn't they didn't hire army <laughs> hammer for that much <laughs> it's it's really hard to know for sure because like not only was this movie in production hell but like not it, I don't think they said very much about the production while it was going on before they like had to do Army Hammer reshoots. Yeah. You know, I have no reason to disbelieve them because it doesn't matter enough. It's Will Arnett's role is pretty substantial. And um, what it sounded like to me is that Army Hammer's role was a different character. Not like maybe an equivalent character, but like Will Arnett, Will Arnett's character is um, tied to Michael Fassbender's character because he's currently dating Michael Fassbender's ex. 
while that might oh, okay. have been what Army Hammer was doing, what I have read about Army Hammer's role makes it sound like he had a slightly different character than that. Like he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't, that wasn't his connection to Michael Fassbender's character. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I just, I found it funny seeing Army Hammer had a cameo. Like Army Hammer is someone that crowds would be like, oh my God, it's Army Hammer in a movie. <laughs> just be like, oh. I think it was just more like Army Hammer might have had a scene or two. And they were like, nah, it was a cameo. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Okay, moving on. I want to hear about Ava uh, DuVernay is interesting because she went from Selma, which was probably one of the most critically acclaimed movies of the early 2010s. I think it won quite a few Oscars. I think she won Best Director, right? I think. Uh, I'm not sure. I know she was uh, she was nominated, I'm pretty she sure. She's definitely nominated. Um, she, yeah, okay, nominee for Best Director. So, and then she went from that to Wrinkle of Time four years later, which I thought was quite an interesting career path for her. So, what did you think of her? I get it's been five years since Wrinkle of Time, which is crazy to me. Um, and you know, considering um, how much momentum she might have had, but maybe, maybe Disney, maybe Disney really took it, took it out of her after that. I think Wrinkle of Time bombed like really bad. So, well, her latest movie, and this is one that I hadn't I hadn't actually even heard of until it was announced like last minute for TIFF. Uh, it's called Origin, and it was astounding. This is such a good movie. This is one that I expect. Uh, I don't know if we'll end up doing an episode on it, but there's a decent chance that we will because I expect it to do. I expect it to get a lot of buzz going into Oscar season, especially, uh, it was, it was really good. It's one of those movies that I've been impressed with actually a lot recently. It's based on a nonfiction book, but like one of those books, that's like an academic essay. It's not like based on someone's memoir. It's the, the book that it's based on is called cast. And it's about the, um, it's about systemic, um, it's about the caste system and part of the, I haven't read the book, so I, I'm summarizing here from what I know in the movie. Um, it's sort of an examination of how uh, the caste system in India is similar to systemic racism and systemic, or not systemic racism in specific, but like systemic um Oh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Systemic prejudices in other parts of the world. So like in the movie, she's specifically comparing the caste system in India with um, with specific reference to the Dalits, the like lowest, un- the lowest caste, the untouchables to the Jews in Germany versus during World War II and uh, slavery in America. So it's like, comparing all three of these things and showing how like prejudice between in groups and out groups is built up. And it's, it's a hard movie to describe um, because it does all of that. And it's not a documentary. Like it builds the, the story that it builds is it's similar in a, in kind of a roundabout way. The best thing I can compare it to is adaptation where it's a movie about the person creating the book. I guess adaptation is about adapting the book, so it's not quite the same. But in this, uh, in Origin, it's about the person who 
um, wrote the book Cast, doing her research to like come up with this thesis and then deliver this book. Her personal journey of like finding, of doing all this research and also like um, her personal love story with her husband. Yeah, the way that it builds it up, there's, it, it builds in like three or four different love stories across time to like explain its point and make its point like very personal. Uh, it's it's a movie that's so, so difficult to describe, but it's really, really special. Like it's a movie where not only did I just love the content of it and the story that it told, but I also felt like I learned something. And that's not mm. something I can say very often about, you know, a movie that's not a documentary. It's very rare yeah. I can say both of those things about a movie that I yeah. like both loved the plot and also felt like I learned something. Oh, nice. So this was a very good turnaround for her. Those are five yeah. years well spent. Yeah. And um, also this was one that I got last minute between two other movies where I had like a five minute turnaround for each movie. Like yeah. I had to run to this one and then I had to run out of this one. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really glad I did because it was um, very, very briefly. It was like my favorite movie of the festival. Um, okay. Another one I want to ask you about is, I mean, I saw your review on this. Uh, we have a review on TikTok, but. Uh, Dick's the musical directed by Larry Charles, who I'm kind of a fan of. I, you know, he was involved in Seinfeld and Caribbean enthusiasm. And he, he directed what Borat or a lot of the Sasha Baron Cohen movies, um, including Borat mm. and Bruno, which are both amazing. Uh, yeah. What'd you think of this? Uh, this was hilarious. This is another one that was very, very briefly uh, my favorite of the festival. This is an A24 movie. It's from, so it's directed by Larry Charles, but it's based on a musical by the two people that star in it. Um, what are their names? Josh Sharp and Aaron Jackson. They did an off-Broadway musical about, that's that's basically the parent trap. Um, but the, the conceit is they are two identical twins who work a business job selling... Uh, selling just the parts for Roombas, just the replacement parts, not the Roombas themselves. Mm. And they find out like they're, they're the two best salesmen at their company. And after a merger, they find out that they're actually twins separated at birth. So they need oh, wow. to uh, parent trap their parents back together so they can have a real family instead of, you know, the single, the single parent homes they grew up with, in, which as they say in the movie, Single parent home isn't a real family. <laughs> Jeez. Um, and it is hilarious. Uh, it's got Nathan Lane and Ma and Megan Mullally in it. Uh, it's extremely crude. Like, I mean, lots, lots of swearing, but also I there's... Um, yeah, obviously, I guess. The opening song where it's introducing both of the main characters, uh, they just talk about how huge their dicks are. And like when they meet each other, they like shake each other's hands and electricity goes through their hands and like highlights the outline of their massive dongs. Uh, there's there's so there's so many like it's it's a laugh a minute. There's so much weird nonsense in this movie. It's like what else is there? Like Megan Mullally has she she keeps her vagina in a bag and at one point she throws it out and it just starts flying. And it like saves the day because it's sentient. This is so strange. There's like, it's it's just like, oh man. 
I'm excited for people to see this because there's so many funny jokes in this that I want to talk about, but also like I was keeled over laughing because I didn't know about them going in. (laughs) So like what I would recommend, this movie actually comes out really soon. If anyone is listening to this, like don't look up any of the material about this movie. Just watch it because like A24, apparently the, apparently the trailer is not good anyway. I haven't seen it, but apparently the trailer is not good. But also, A24 has been, like, spoiling some of the best jokes in this movie on Twitter. And, like, they shouldn't do that. There's some yeah. things on this that are, like, amazing to witness for the first time in theaters. <laughs> and, like, uh, this is the second time I've seen Nathan Lane in a movie this year after Bo is Afraid. And he's so funny. Like... I always liked Nathan Lane anyway, but um, seeing him in movies again this year, he's like, he's one of the funniest actors there is, period. He's, uh, in, in this movie, he's like, this movie has a blooper reel and you can just see how everyone is like dying just watching Nathan Lane do things. I feel like he's um, someone that I always loved when I see him, but I never like, actively think about watching him if that makes sense kind of like gary oldman yeah it always turns in a great performance but i'm not going to the movie because of gary oldman but it's always like you know you're like oh it's gary oldman's here that's good yeah yeah i guess like for me so both of these movies like dicks the musical and bo is afraid i actually did go to like i actually did go to for nathan lane but the thing is that like they're wrapped in movies that I would want to see for other reasons. Like if it was just Nathan Lane bringing me in, I hope I would, that would be enough, but like, Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell for sure when a is afraid is an Ari Aster movie. And I don't know. Dick's the musical is is titled Dick's the musical. It's very different. (laughs) Yeah. I guess like the only thing that personally didn't sit well with me, uh, with Dick's the musical is the ending. Um, Mm. the ending is a very, very good song but it is dicey. Like this movie is pushing the envelope the whole way. And I think everyone watching this movie is going to have like a different threshold of what they're okay with. And I think the very last song is where it hit it for me, where I was like, "Mm, I don't know about that one. Actually, I'm trying my hardest not to spoil this movie. And so I'm not going to say too much what that is, but I would say that like this movie is, Wherever they can, they're just trying to do the wildest shit. And eventually, I feel like for a lot of people, there's going to be some point in the movie where it's like, nope, that's where I got to tap out. And luckily for me, it wasn't until the very end. Also, uh, Bowen Yang is in this movie, and I found him annoying. But I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would find it funny. He's like, he's, he's, the, the, his performance is like, I don't know. It's it's very sassy, and I thought it was too much, but I don't think That's everyone cool. did because a lot of people thought it was funny in the audience. So I'm not a huge Bowen. Yeah, I I just remember him from SNL, I think, and he was always, you know, I think he overacted or he was he did a, he always did a little too much in my opinion. But he's, uh, he's, he's doing a little too much in in Dick's the Musical, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, that's impressive that he was doing too much for for Dick's the Musical, like. Um, but yeah, okay. Well, before you spoil anything, uh, there's a couple more I want to touch on. Richard Linklater, or Linklater, you, what do you think of his movie Hitman? Oh man, 
this was exciting. This is one that um, I had to, I had to fight to get this ticket. This was one that like, it was another one that I had to run to. Like I had to like leave the last movie before it, the moment the credits started just so I could get to it. And this is one that was like doing insanely well at the festival. They, I managed to catch like the second screening that they had added. So like it was already getting two screenings and I think I caught like the fourth after they added two more. And this is awesome. Do you remember Gwen Powell? Yeah. From, I, just, okay. I just know her from Guardians of the Galaxy. Wait, Glenn Powell was in Guardians of the Galaxy? Oh, wait, maybe I'm thinking of a different Glenn. I completely oh, forgot that. Oh, Glenn Powell, the guy from... Uh, Top Gun Maverick. I'm thinking of, yeah, Glenn... I don't know what's thinking about. Okay, yeah, Glenn Powell. Okay. Yeah, um, so Glenn Powell, I've, I've seen him in things. I know I have, but I mostly only know him from Top Gun Maverick. And uh, I think with Hitman, this that's about to change. Like, the, the biggest thing against Hitman right now is that it doesn't yet have distribution, which is so mm. weird because it's been getting that nothing really but weird. rave reviews. But as long as this movie does come out and it's Richard Linklater getting rave reviews, like, it's going to come out. I yeah. think this is the movie that Glenn Powell is going to be like, this is going to be the defining movie of his career. Wait, it, so he's the star? He's the star and he wrote oh. it. Along with oh, Richard wow. Linklater, yeah. Where's um, apparently so connected? That's crazy. Apparently, like he used this. I heard this like second or third hand, so I have no idea if it's actually true, but it makes sense. Uh, mm. Apparently, he used his time doing Top Gun Maverick to like make the best connection you can make in Hollywood, and like constantly ask Tom Cruise for notes on his yeah. screenplay. So, like. Oh, wow. If this screenplay is really good, and I'll tell you right now, it is. That's a that's in no small part thanks to the advice of Tom Cruise. But anyway, Hitman is about a guy named Gary Johnson who was supposed. I, I guess he was a real person. He was a psychology teacher who worked undercover with the. Um, he like moon. He did some moonlighting undercover for the cops as a fake hitman, basically running helping the cops like catch people who want to order a hitman by pretending to be that hitman the way that he does that in his in the movie like it's glenn powell's character gary johnson who's just this like he's this nerd who's super into bird watching but he's also like a psychology teacher so he's devoted a lot a lot of his life to like learning how people's minds work so the way yeah. that he'll pretend to be a hitman for people is he'll look them up on Facebook, he'll like Facebook stalk them, he'll like look up everything he can about them, learn who they are, and go to them as like the ideal version of what they would want in a hitman. So like, he has a lot of scenes, a lot of the scenes in this movie are just Glenn Powell meeting with a person who's trying to hire a hitman. And, mm-hmm. and like, one of my favorite things about this movie is in all of those scenes, he's playing someone new. Like, he's always playing a completely different persona. The Master of Disguise is not a great movie, but if you remember, like, the whole conceit of that movie is that he's constantly in the disguise as a different character. And, like, this is that, but if it was really, really, really good. There's some really funny ones. Like, he goes to meet one guy who's, like... This is... It's based on Gary Johnson, but it is definitely transplanted to very close to the modern day where Gary Johnson, I believe, 
according to the movie, worked mostly, like, he started working in the 70s and, like, maybe never quit until he died. But, like, he was mostly working in the 70s and 80s. But there's a lot of, there's, like, he goes to a trailer park and he's meeting with this woman in the trailer park and he's this Russian mobster dressed all in black with, like, a super ugly made-up face and just talking about like, and and like everything he says makes it very clear that he's not from the United States. He's like from, he's from Russia and he's doing this to get by or like he goes and hangs out with a guy who, with like a second amendment guy who, uh, when he goes to see him, he's like fully tatted up and he's like shooting pigeons with the guy. There's, there's so many, he goes, he has like so many different personas in this movie. And I think that like, He's amazing in all of them, even though most of them are only short, short scenes. But still, he shows like an insane amount of range. Yeah. Um, the main plot of this movie is uh, has is kind of a romantic thriller, like when he's not going around like him going around being a bunch of people's different hitmen is kind of on the side there's one most of this movie is just him as gary johnson or him as ron the hitman because he becomes like a a little bit more involved in the story of one of the people who tries to hire a hitman and like there's there's a romantic thriller element to it but i think it goes in some really some some directions that aren't super played out which is really nice it's never fully committing to being like a cheesy romantic comedy but it's yeah. like, but you know, it hits, it hits the notes it needs to. And it does some very cool things with it during this. There's some really cool twists here and there. And I think that there's some details sprinkled into this movie that I really appreciated by the end. I'm going to say one here, but like every single version of him, like every single hitman that he plays, every one of them, if someone asks about why he's getting, he'll always buy a pie if he's meeting them at like a diner. And if someone asks him about the pie, he'll go, oh, all pie is good pie. And like you, that keeps coming up. And just literally just that as one sentence, it's not that big of a thing, but it's a really nice character moment when they keep bringing it back and it keeps like taking on slightly new meanings. There's just a lot of like really nice attention to detail in this movie. Thanks to Tom Cruise, obviously. Tom, you know, honestly, I can see Tom Cruise saying any pie is good pie. There you go, right? That's cool. That's exciting. I didn't think, I I honestly haven't thought much about Richard Linklater since, honestly, since boyhood. And it's cool that it sounds like he has a great movie on his hands. Yeah, he actually, um, since boyhood, his big project that he's like, I'm not going to say constantly in the news for, but like does come up occasionally is he's doing a, an adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical merrily we roll along. And that musical takes place in reverse chronological order over the course of 24 years, I believe. And so Richard Linklater is he's, he's shooting it over 24 years. It's it's quite a bold um, uh, thing to do. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I hope it pays off because uh, by all accounts, it's not like even one of Stephen Sondheim's more popular musicals. <laughs> Jeez. Um, but anyway, what I've what I've found, what I think is kind of interesting is even though he's like 
constantly doing these like weird film projects that seem that, that will work out, I'm sure, but like are very much, in my opinion, more concerned with the form of the media, like the medium of film and the form of film than like the actual content, which like Boyhood was good, but the main thing about Boyhood was that it was filmed over 13 years. Like, there wasn't a completed script beforehand. They would always, like, work out the script for this year shortly before they would come together and actually film it. So that was really more, in like, it, it was very good, but, like, it wasn't about the story. It wasn't about the story that he wanted to tell on the page. Like, the story that he wanted to tell was through the medium and through the filming process. And I think that's really cool. But what I really appreciate is that in addition to that, he's also like, you know, he's got this 24 year film project and I think he's still come out with like one movie every year for at least the last two years, which is two movies. But like, I think for a couple of years, like he has, he keeps having movies out. Yeah. Well, he's a, I mean, he's a hard worker. Who knows? Maybe he's, Maybe while he's filming the twenty-year movie, he's filming a forty-year movie, like, and we wouldn't even know until it comes oh. out in twenty sixty or something. He's just I, like layers. There's layers to this. There's a uh, there's a movie that Robert Rodriguez filmed with John Malkovich, uh, and it was put in a vault and will be released in, I believe, twenty one nineteen. Like it's it's. Uh, <laughs> It's just like put in a vault for a hundred years. It would be hilarious if the year that that movie releases, Richard Linklater also has a movie that he was working on for like sixty years. I I'm not gonna lie. I, I feel like like Robert Rodriguez and John Malkovich aren't nearly big enough names to warrant like a hundred years later. They are gonna be like, we need to watch this movie. You know, I feel like it's just gonna be like, oh, like there's this movie drop like who, who knows if movies will even be a thing like a big a big source of big medium by then you know it's hard True. to say i don't know what yeah what's cinema like, gonna look like next, in 100 years whatever the next i mean 100 years ago like we didn't even have it was like i think there were theaters but like the biggest thing was like i think radio at the time probably and then movies didn't really get big until like the 50s and then you know so i don't maybe, maybe like by then it'll be like holographic like chambers where you like view you're like in the scene itself anyways that's my dream well this it's actually interesting that we would bring up the future of cinema because i saw a movie that is specifically about trying to be whatever comes after movies and that is agro drift from harmony corinne this movie is not a movie just like straight up it's just not a movie i i think (laughs) I I had such a hard time even thinking like this with all of these movies, I've been trying to like give them at least a brief review and uh, like a score on Letterboxd as, as well while I was watching them or, you know, after I watched them and aggro drift made me rethink that entire process and like wonder if in fact numbers might be bullshit because like this movie just, I don't even know how to conceptualize what this is supposed to be. Uh, Agro Drift is, it's from Harmony Corinne and it's starring two people mainly. 
it's it's starring mostly non-actors, but the main people in it are Jordy, Mola, Moya, and Travis Scott. As Jordy is playing a hitman and Travis Scott might also be playing a hitman. It's kind of hard to know. Uh, they're definitely not the same person, but I also can't really tell if Travis Scott is supposed to be a bad guy or a good guy or what he's supposed to be in this. He kind yeah. of only comes up for like one scene, but I guess if you wanted to think of what, if you wanted to know what the story of Agro Drift is and you really wanted to like push and find a story, it's about a hitman who has to kill a devil or something, but like the story isn't important the images are hardly important. It's just like entirely a vibe. Like that's, that's the whole point of the movie. It's all shot on infrared cameras. So it's extremely hard to make anything out on the, on screen. And like they use not AI image generation, but AI image like modulation. I don't know exactly what to say about what, what, what to call it, but like there'll be images on screen and like, as things are going by, you'll see like one person's arm will just like become a bunch of gears briefly. Not really, but it'll just like look like it has an overlay for a couple of seconds and then that'll go away and the overlay will be like super, it'll be super crude and like not consistent. Um, so that's where I'm pretty sure they're using like AI to overlay stuff as well as just like things that look like Snapchat filters. Like there's a bunch of characters in this who get like demon masks at different points, but those yeah. demon masks will just like completely phase out of existence if yeah. they move their head the wrong way, like a Snapchat filter would. And the dialogue in this movie is, I think Harmony Corinne during the Q&A, which was not a helpful Q&A, by the way. Most of the questions he was like, yeah, next question. Uh-huh, yep, good. During the Q&A, anyway, he said, like, most of the dialogue was free. He described it as freestyled. And, like, that's probably the best way to describe it. It was, like, very mantra-esque, which I think is also a word he used. But, like, the main character, Jordi Moya, says, I am the, says some variation of I am the world's greatest hitman probably 300 times in the 70-minute movie. And most of the time that he's doing that, it's like, I'm the world's best hitman. I'm the greatest hitman. I am the greatest hitman in the world. I'm the world's greatest hitman. Like, it'll just be the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, so this movie is like, it's scored by Arab music. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Arab music. Um, and it feels like a visual album, but not in the same conceptual way as something like a Beyonce visual album where it's all music videos. It feels like a visualizer almost okay it's extremely weird uh like i said i think i rated it low as a movie but it made me reconsider what ratings even mean because i think this is like an incredible art project it's just like not a movie i'm really glad i got to see it because of any of the movies that are on here this is the one that i expect to be of the ones that i saw this is probably the one that I expect to be the hardest to find in the future because I don't think it has distribution and like it'll probably eventually get distribution because it's so notable for what Harmony Corinne has been saying about it that like a lot of people are curious. 
Yeah. But also it's not really a marketable, like this is not a movie that will do well in theaters and it's not a movie that even should be in theaters. Like yeah. the best place to put this would be as a special exhibit in like a museum. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I, I know Travis Scott was, uh, his one of his favorite movies or he's very inspired by the, the Holy mountain movie. I think it's called is it, mm. is it the Holy mountain. That, um, which I heard yeah. is also just a very visually, it's more of a, an experience as a visually interesting, but plotless movie. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like this kind of might be down the same lane. And I guess it's cool that, you know, I, I feel like when these technologies are developed, you're not going to get the best filmmakers to make a good story around them until you see people, uh, truly try to make some weird stuff with it first. <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, I actually read a review of this that I thought was really, really good by uh, David Ehrlich at IndieWire. And one of the things that really stuck with me from that review is he was talking about how important it is to push the cinematic medium forward. And he was saying sometimes, sometimes you get something like Toy Story, I'm paraphrasing heavily, sometimes you get something like Toy Story, which like not only changes the entire industry, but is also like a, a... commercial success. Everyone wants to see Toy Story and people love it. Sometimes you get something like Agro Drift, which is like someone trying to push the medium forward, but has all the marketability of penis cancer. This is not a movie that is going to be easily sellable to any kind of public. Like you're never going to see this in a cineplex. Yeah. Well, to be fair with Toy Story as well, like the technology started with, I think, like they were make or John Lasseter was making short films with CGI by himself, basically at Pixar before it even became a movie business. And mm. um, the CG, I mean, the, it, it didn't look that great back then either. Like that was in 91, I think. So yeah, you know, like may, maybe we'll see more an infrared movie. I don't know, James, if James Cameron jumps on that for Avatar 7 or whatever, like could be, it could really change the industry. You never know. It reminded me a lot of like those show models that they make at like at car shows or or like the extremely weird fashion stuff that they'll put at some fashion shows where it's like it's not necessarily something that you need to adapt to that like the next person needs to adapt wholesale. Like there's a lot of ideas in Agro Drift that are probably good. Whoever does whoever the next person is to do something like this shouldn't take all of them. He should take like one or two of the ideas and see if he can run with them in an interesting way because agro drift is like an awful lot and not all of it works. And even a lot of the ideas that are probably good as ideas aren't yeah. like executed very well in agro drift. Yeah. Fair enough, but it could be interesting to see what happens in the future. Uh, I guess I, we're, we're running a little long, so I'm going to let you, if there's one movie you had to pick from Tiff that you need to talk about, let's hear about that movie right now. All right. Well, uh, the one movie I need to talk about from Tiff is uh, The Teacher's Lounge. This one was amazing. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about what the movie was about, but as I was watching this, I forgot I was in a theater. Like, I was so engrossed in this movie And like that, I can't remember the last time that happened except like, yeah, I can't remember the last time that happened in a movie. It was 
I just like fully disappeared into this movie. So the teacher's lounge is a movie about a teacher in Germany who uh, at a school where there is like someone is stealing things. There's been, there's been like some money being stolen. And um, at the beginning of the movie, we're like introduced to the teacher as she's helping out with basically an interrogation of some students to see from some of the other teachers to see if they can like pinpoint who's stealing this money. And um, the way the movie goes is eventually she figures out or fairly soon in she accidentally leaves her laptop out and, and, and recording and like find gets evidence of someone doing what looks like stealing money from her wallet. And it turns out that money has been stolen from her wallet. So she accuses one of the faculty of stealing, of being the person who's stealing. And the movie basically is all about the fallout from that because the person who she accuses does not, um, doesn't confess. And in fact is quite offended by the accusation and, uh, the whole movie is about sort of what happens to the teacher and also to the person who gets accused just from the accusation. Uh, that's the, that's the basic plot synopsis of, of this movie. Mm. And I think that uh, what's really great about this movie is um, first off, it's just like, it's not, it may or may not actually be about false accusations because Technically, um, at least through most of the movie, whether or not the accusation that this teacher has leveled against the other faculty member is true doesn't necessarily matter because the fact that she accused her um, of stealing money means that now everyone else like thinks of this other person as a thief and her and her son like get loads of shit for it, whether it was true or not. On the other hand, like on the other side, everyone who like some of the students who do side with the person who is accused and think that the teacher made like a bad accusation, um, sort of exert the exact same kind of pressure, like exert the exact same kind of pressure against her. So it's sort of this dual bullying story about, the teacher being bullied and also this student who's the son of the other faculty member being bullied and how that affects both of them and like how their situations are more similar than they probably want them to be. Um, the way that this movie plays out, it's, it, it's really, it's a thriller that is, cons it's constant tension and it keeps it up really, really well. I think um, I was lucky enough to go to the, I think it was the premiere of this one. And they had the director afterwards give a Q&A. And he said that they gave every department some uh, specific guidelines of, or some specific restrictions. Like the uh, cinema, the script writers, no, for the script department, they were never allowed to uh, leave the school. For the music department, he was limited to three instruments and he 
And like when he tried to make it too, when he tried to make the score too varied, the director came in and was like, no, no, no. The score should be like something that's constantly nagging at you that you can't get rid of. And the way that that actually comes across in the movie is really, really, really powerful. There's like this three note, like there's this one plucked violin note. I think it's a violin that just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And it's, uh, it works really well because it's a little bit annoying every time. So like you just can't get it out of you. It's, it, it feels like something is nagging at you the whole time and it keeps you from ever being really relaxed in the space. Um, yeah, the, uh, this, is, this is a German movie, obviously. Um, and it was selected for as Germany's submission for the Best International Feature Oscar. So hopefully we'll be seeing more of this one. But also what I liked about this is, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show. I feel like I probably have. I went to school in Germany and I went to a high school that was much smaller than the one in this movie, but like very similar right down to the visuals of it. Like it looked a lot of, it looked very much the same. And I had a teacher that like, I've had at least one teacher that was, you know, like this teacher in the movie. And I had, and I had like other students in my class who were like other students in this, uh, in this movie. Uh, you know, there were times when I was the little shit disturber in the, like in the class, same as like some of the people in the movie. And I was like, I recognized myself in a lot of different parts of this movie. Basically it's, uh, it was, I definitely do not think it was written for me specifically, but there were a couple of movies that like really resonated with me, you know, beyond just being good movies, they resonated at a really personal level because I could uh, weirdly relate. They, they weirdly related to like very specific parts of my life. And this was one of them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I don't know if I'm going to get the chance to talk about the teacher's lounge again, but uh I, that's, that was my favorite of the whole festival. And, um, it's one that I would recommend to just about anyone. I like, it hit me really hard. And I think that it was, I don't know. It's, it's just actually the best movie of the festival by a long shot, as far as I'm concerned. Is it, so you're saying it's the, the best made or your personal favorite? Definitely my personal favorite. I think it is also one of one of the best made of the movies I saw at the festival. I think I would I think I would say it's the best made of the movies I saw at the festival. Okay. And who who won the do do we know who won the People's Choice Award there? Yes, we do. The People's Choice Award went to a movie called American Fiction which I tried to get into on the last day, which was today. And I could not. Um, Apparently I maybe could have, but the thing was, it was either I wanted to get into a five 30 showing of the people's choice award. And I was standing in line at five 30 and they weren't letting anyone in yet. And I got cold feet because I had another, I had an alternate showing I could have gone to of a different movie at five 45 so at 5.30, when there still was no movement in the line, I was like, I'm just going to go to the one at 5.45. Yeah. And what I heard afterwards was that the 5.30 showing probably would have let most people in, Damn. which, unfortunate, 
But American Fiction, American Fiction being a People's Choice Award winner, uh, is probably going to get nominated for Oscars. So we'll talk yeah, about it on this we'll show. We'll talk about it later. And also, it's coming out in November. <laughs> so okay. I'll get the, I will get the chance to see it, as yeah. will you. It's going to yeah. go wide, obviously. So, so we'll, we'll get to, we'll get to that one. Okay, uh, for the last two, we're gonna we're gonna do some quick fire questions. Um, just do you have the you, do you have your list out? I do have my list out. Okay, I'm gonna ask. I'm you don't have to get these accurate. I'm just gonna throw these out and then maybe do like a quick one minute. Uh, I'll do do like a twenty second quick review of like each one we say. Okay. All right. Um, and if it's a movie we talked about, you don't have to say much. But already, but okay, funniest movie. Uh, funniest, oh god, funniest movie is Dicks. Easily Dicks the musical. Uh, worst movie. Worst movie is Green Border. It is a Polish movie that, you know, it might be important. It's about refugees and, uh, the troubles that they face at the Poland-Belarus border. It's very, very preachy. And I think that its preachiness comes at the expense of, a good story or good characters. I mm. really, really hated it, and I wish I didn't. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Uh, most surprising movie. Most surprising movie was Origin. I okay. didn't know what to expect, um, but it was better than I could have ever hoped for. Okay. Um, movie you, you the first movie you want to watch again in theaters that will realistically be in theaters, so not not the teachers' lounge. Uh, let me, let me, let me come back to that one. Okay. Uh, what do you, was there a movie that, well, did you, did you talk to a lot of people there or do you, was it a social? I did not end up talking to many people. I had a laundry right. list of like people I wanted to talk to and yeah. I never saw any of them. So oh, did, it didn't did you work, see it didn't any celebrities? Out. I, well, I, I went to a lot of Q and A's that had celebrities at them. But otherwise, the most famous person I saw was a YouTuber who I'm going to keep nameless here just in case. Yeah, but yeah. that was the most famous person I saw who wasn't actively at a QA. and a Okay. Uh, movie with the loudest audience. Um, anything at Midnight Madness. I've already said Dick's the Musical, so I'm going <laughs> to refrain from saying that one and sure. say Sleep instead, okay. uh, which was a Korean movie. Uh, Korean genre horror movie. I think I actually mentioned it early on. Korean genre horror movie that it's it's about a guy who starts basically sleepwalking, but because it's a horror movie, he starts doing an awful lot of other stuff in his sleep as well. Yeah. And uh, it's, I think it starts from a really, really interesting premise. And by the end, it's a ghost story that's not bad, but is a little bit like generic. Okay. Did you like the Nickelback movie? That's fine. <laughs> I thought it was very nice. Okay. Like it was a nice artist profile. And I think that the most interesting things they could have said about Nickelback were not in the movie, which is a shame. Okay. It sets, because like it sets out specifically what I want to know going into a movie called hate to love Nickelback is why do people hate Nickelback? And Like, that's the main thing I want to know. And, like, I have my own idea of why people hate Nickelback. Like, I'm not the biggest fan either. But, like, if that's if it's a movie about Nickelback and the hate they have received as a band, I want to know where that hate comes from. Like, that's the thing you yeah. should be investigating in that movie. Usually, when they brought that up, 
the answer was, I don't know why people hate Nickelback. I guess they're dumb. That's like, that's not an answer. It's not even, yeah. it's completely dodging the question. So the other were... thing is that in that movie, they set out, they gave, they, they made Chad Kroger seem like the most interesting person in the world, specifically because they never talked to him. And like, the thing is, I really wish that the movie, like I, the way after coming out of that movie, my biggest takeaway is that uh, an actual like, good interview with Chad Kroger would be one of the coolest interviews you could ever get because he seems like such an actually interesting person who was just not interested in being in the movie, which is a shame because I think he's the most interesting part of what they set out to do in that movie. I'm disappointed that it didn't delve more into the, yeah, the hate thing. I thought that would have been a more interesting or more unique selling point for a documentary. So I've talked about this on the sto- on the show before, but one of my favorite documentaries is called Listening to Kenny G. And it's sp- like the very first thing that happens in that movie is Penny Lane, the person who is putting together the documentary, says, I wanted to know why people hate Kenny G. So she brings in like actual experts, like jazz professors in of jazz and like pop music critics who have been like, who have been there for the entire history of Kenny G and asks them the question, like, is Kenny G good? Why or why mm. not? And gets really good answers out of them. Mm. And I am like with the, with the Nickelback documentary, you know, they don't have to do the exact same thing, but the only times that why, that like the question of why do people hate Nickelback uh, came up were to people who weren't, qualified to answer that question in or not who weren't qualified who didn't answer that question in an interesting way mm. that's unfortunate yeah um okay last question what would you say is going to be the most financially successful movie there i'm gonna go with either the holdovers or yeah you know what i'm gonna say the holdovers the holdovers is gonna be the one uh it is a movie of, starring paul giamatti Uh, It's a Christmas movie, so that's already, like, working for it. Um, It's a Christmas movie that uh, is about... It's set in the 70s, and it's about a a kid at a boarding school and a teacher at a boarding school who have to stay at the boarding school over Christmas break. And it's very sweet. I actually really, really liked it. I don't think it's, like, a brainless crowd-pleaser, but I do think that a lot of, I think this, it's one that's going to play very well with a lot of audiences and it's coming out essentially like it's marketed basically as an indie movie. And I think in most important ways, it is an indie movie. Uh, but it's, I think going to do very well over Christmas, especially if it like, I don't think there's a lot of competition over Christmas this year, at least not compared to like other years. Yeah. It's unfortunate um that well I was actually sorry no I'm going to say unfortunate. It's 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 interesting about I get Alexander Payne. I actually I knew I recognized that name but he did Nebraska 10 years ago and I love that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh he he went through well he did Nebraska and the Descendants which I need to watch. I heard that was amazing too. And then I heard Downsizing. That's what Matt Damon, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was apparently one of like a, a horrible movie. I, I only read about it, but have you seen it? I have friends who have seen it. I haven't personally seen it myself. Oh, okay. 
I just I remember thinking like I I can't believe how much people hated this movie. Um, I don't know why specifically I thought that, but I was worried about that. But anyways, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I was just gonna say I'm gonna come back to a question that I said I would come back to. Oh right. Uh, most surprising movie, I would have to say, uh, after thinking about it a little bit, uh, The Monk and the Gun. This is a movie, uh, it's a Bhutanese movie from a guy who did a movie called Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom, mm-hmm. uh, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best International Feature in, I think it was two years ago. Anyway, uh, The Monk and the Gun is his second movie. Also, mostly featuring non-actors because Bhutan, uh, Bhutan has a very young film industry, so there aren't there aren't actually a lot of trained actors in Bhutan. Period. But the Monk and the Gun was another one where I actually like I went into it expecting it to be like you know kind of a I, I didn't know what to expect. I had forgotten that I actually knew this director, uh, so I went in just sort of expecting a fun comedy on a Saturday morning, and it was another one where I came out and I learned something. Because this movie is set in 2006 during a real thing that happened in Bhutan. Bhutan has historically been a kingdom and they like kind of shut down to the outside world, at least in most important ways uh, for most of the 20th century. Starting, I think, in the 80s, there was a big modernization effort. And in 2006, specifically, the king was like, you know, this democracy thing is really, you know, people like that all over the world. So, you know what? What if I give uh, my kingdom a beautiful gift? I'm going to give them democracy. I will abdicate and they will choose their own leader. And so Bhutan is the only place in the world that has that was actually like that didn't have to fight for democracy. The only democracy in the world that never had to fight for it. But as a result, at least in 2006, when they were getting it, they also didn't necessarily understand it in a lot of places. So The Monk and the Gun is about the like lead up to the democracy, uh, to Bhutan becoming a democracy and a big plot of it. Like basically the B plot of it is that there is a person in town who is helping to prepare the town to vote in a mock referendum and trying to prepare them for what a democracy, like what, how they have to act in a democracy and how a democracy works. And it's very sweet, actually. It's very funny. There's a lot of really funny scenes. And especially what's especially interesting is just seeing how people react completely against how we would expect people to react to a democracy. You know, people are constantly like, why do we need this? This is just making us all rude. I don't want this. We want to we want to vote for our king. And mm. in the mock election, the king is the person that wins. So like, <laughs> anyway, it's it's very funny, but it was very sweet. And also, I felt like I learned something. And uh, the the whole movie is building up to something that seems very ominous. But then at the very end, sort of. Uh, ends up surprising you. I don't want to say more than that, but I don't know how this one is going to release, but mm. if it's possible to see, I definitely recommend it because it is, it was a very like heartwarming movie, but not, not, not in a typical way. It, it was mm. very different from a lot of movies I'd seen. Well, okay. Cool. Well, that's, I guess that's the TIFF movies. I just want to ask one last question in general. What, 
how was TIFF this year? Like the, the event, you know, what was it? It was really good. I really liked it. I think in total, I disliked like four movies and I saw 40. So that's maybe 10%, but -hmm. it's also absolute numbers. That means I saw 36 great movies, which, uh, you know, I'm sure there were very bad movies at TIFF that I could have hit instead. (laughs) And I'm glad I didn't. So like, I'm very happy with my experience and um, I'm, I'm hoping I will get the chance to do it again. I, I also hope that next year I will be able to, uh, if I go again, I will be able to restrain myself because 40 movies is a lot. And uh, I don't know that I want that to be, I don't want my goal to be that I want to always do more. I would actually like to like find a good balance of less than that. That's fair. Yeah. You really pushed yourself, but Hey, you know, I mean, maybe are, are you saying, did you say the same thing last year? I, I might have. I don't know. I can't remember for sure. <laughs> well, but so like, try to, we have a recording. So next year we'll check back and see if yeah. you watch less than maybe, maybe you'll watch 39 movies next year. And I mean, technically say you, you found more balance. Last year I saw 30 ish. Like, I think I saw 33 last year. This year I saw 40. Unless my situation changes drastically, like mm-hmm. my life situation changes drastically before next TIFF. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be a similar number. I just hope okay. it's not like, okay. I, I don't want to be exhausted afterwards. At least yeah. I don't want to be exhausted and also tired of movies. Yeah. Fair I'm going to be one of those. I'm going to be exhausted anyway. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I was also very, it, what was also very lucky is I went out on a very good movie, which I'm not going to say anything about. I'm just going to tell the title. Mm. When Evil Lurks. That was my last movie that I saw today. Mm-hmm. And it was a great way to end the festival. I highly recommend it. It comes out on Shutter on October eighth, I believe. So Very cool. Everybody go see that, especially if Ooh. you're into horror movies. This is the kind of thing that the horror movie club at UBCO would have like died for. Died for. Good stuff. Cool. Well, that was our special TIFF episode. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And Jeff, what is our last word for today? Our last word is people. They're the people that choose.